It's clear to me that the U.S. doesn't have all the answers when it comes to how to address transportation and climate issues. In today's episode, Heather Thompson of the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy shares some of the lessons her organization has learned from its work in the Global South. Coming up next on the Movement Podcast. Let's go. The freedom of movement to access jobs, education, and social activities is a fundamental human right. But that freedom is not distributed equitably, undermining our ability to create vibrant and sustainable communities for all. Welcome to The Movement, where we talk with the leaders who are reshaping their communities with brave decisions, inspired advocacy, and a stubborn unwillingness to accept the status quo, all in an effort to inspire the next generation of leaders. Here's your host, Josh Cohen. Heather Thompson is the CEO of the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, or ITDP, an organization she has been involved with for over a dozen years at the board level. She previously was co-founder and vice president of programs for Climate Works and a principal at California Environmental Associates. Welcome to the movement, Heather. Thank you so much for having me here. Let's start just by introducing ITDP and the work that you do to those who aren't as familiar with the organization. Sure. Yeah. So ITDP is uh, more than 35 years old now. We are headquartered in New York, where I am sitting here today as I speak to you. Um, And uh, we're a nonprofit organization, and we focus on promoting sustainable, equitable transportation in cities all over the world. And we predominantly focus on the global south, so the the more rapidly emerging economies and, and growing countries around the world. Um, we have offices all over the world that are staffed by local experts, um, so af- offices in China, Indonesia, East Africa, North Africa, Brazil, Mexico, um, and here in the U.S. as well. And we provide advice to directly to city governments, um, but also work with other nonprofit organizations to promote our ideas and and to try and get cities to move in the right direction. And you know, we also often work at the state, federal, and even international level to try and get financial flows to, to go to the right things as well. So that's us in a nutshell. Um, and uh, yeah, we work on a lot of things to, to make cities more sustainable and more equitable. So promoting public transportation, walking, cycling, that's sort of the backbone of our work. But yeah, we can we can dig into it a little bit more here. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you wouldn't mind, would you would you share a little bit of the origin story of ITDP, because I feel like that is a a fascinating, fascinating story. It is a fascinating and fun story. We are more than 35 years old now, and our founder, um, a lovely gentleman by the name of Michael Replogel, um, who most recently actually worked here um, for the Department of Transportation in the city of New York. Um, He's done amazing things throughout his career, including founding our organization, Um, on the heels of um, what was called Bikes Not Bombs campaign, which was um, back in the 70s when they were, the United States was essentially um, funding the sending of bombs to Nicaragua. Um, Our founder in his hippie heyday (laughs) decided that it was the wrong thing to do and that the people of Nicaragua would benefit much more from receiving bikes. So he and a few uh, friends and colleagues, um, you know, hunkered away in their basements and 
figured out a way to get bikes donated and moved across borders to Nicaragua and, you know, did a bunch of advocacy against, against sending bombs and, you know, having more, um, more work on, on peace and peace treaties. So yeah, we've been, our, our very genesis is all in, um, trying to get bikes to other countries. And we still do a little bit of that, that very basic work. Um, we are, we participate in some programs that send, um, bikes to lower income cities in Africa. So that very, that very core kind of base volunteerism is, is part of our DNA at ITDP. I just, I just love that origin story because it, it, it's, it's a very humble and kind of tactical beginning that has now led to this worldwide organization that is, you know, really making some fundamental change around the world. Um, and, and really kind of leading the conversation. I know mean, there was a recent study that, that y'all just released about the electric vehicle transformation that, that obviously needs to happen is starting to happen, at least in the U S and, and, and in other places around the world. But, but you really, your organization really helped, helped highlight that that's not going to be enough. Will, will you give us a little bit of insight on that? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. The report is called the compact city electrified. Um, the only way to the 1.5 degree, uh, target, um, which, um, in, in the world of climate change policy, our target is 1.5 degrees. Um, trying to not let temperatures raise beyond that, those levels, um, because that's when real dangerous impacts of climate change set in. So yeah, we, you know, we're so excited to see all the enthusiasm and progress um, in the electrification space. And it's absolutely fundamental that we get fossil fuels out of the transportation sector. So, again, we're, we're fully on board with this. Um, but we also uh, you know that electrification takes time. It takes money. And, you know, our climate change agenda is an urgent one. And so we wanted to really run the numbers and, and see how far we could get with electrification. And what we what our uh, scenario modeling shows is that um, it's absolutely part of, of the solution, but we can't get all the way to our targets with electrification alone. We also need to focus on promoting public transportation, walking and cycling, and also making sure that as our cities grow, um, they grow up and not out into sprawling cities. And we really have land use patterns that um, allow our cities to remain or grow dense and have more mixed use um, patterns where homes and offices are located in the same area so that people have to travel less um, to get from A to B or to hospitals or schools, all of the things that we, we need. So that compact um, city development is, is really fundamental. And essentially what that means is we need to keep the number of cars on the road to a minimum and electrify the rest. Um, and, you know, really concentrate our investments on vehicles that many people are going to use, like buses and trains. Um, so a big part of that equation is electrifying buses. In most places around the world, people travel on buses. They can't afford their own car, let alone a, a new swanky electric car. Um, so, you know, a focus on really helping cities ramp up the electrification of their bus fleets is, is fundamental to that equation. And, you know, avoiding cars altogether um, with a 
improvements to walking and cycling environments so people can go where they need to go getting on a, a bike or an electric bike and staying out of cars. I mean, I like how all those things kind of reinforce each other as well, right? If, you know, the more compact and dense a city is, the less need you have to have a, a, a personally owned automobile that, that you need, you know, to keep stored and, and, and tuned and all that, um, that it's it's easier to do that biking and, and, and uh, transit and, and walking and so forth. So I, I like how all of that is, is really um, kind of consistent, I guess, and, and kind of self-fulfilling. You know, certainly as you look, you know, here in the U.S., you know, some of our communities are starting to make uh, decisions at a, at a city level to kind of help allow for more of that density. Um, it, it feels like we have a long way to go, right? I mean, certainly you're in New York City. It is quite dense. And, um, you know, I live here in, in North Carolina where it's not nearly as dense, you know, and, and you know, we're trying in places, uh, but it's not without its, its, its own kind of pushback, I guess. Do you have any, any insights or, 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 or thoughts as it relates to kind of this nimbyism response to, to density? Yeah. Um, well, here in the U.S., it is it is such a challenge. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here in New York, but I grew up in L.A., <laughs> which mm. is kind of the mothership of of sprawl, <laughs> I think. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think we are seeing cities grow a lot. You know, throughout the U.S., especially in the aftermath of pandemic, people are you know moving to to different places and just kind of the, the the there's there's a movement happening as people kind of resettle in in different ways. Um, but I, one of the ex- exciting trends I think we see is that um, you know everywhere in cities, unfortunately the price of homes is going up, but that means that there's been a lot more understanding and demand for affordable housing. Um, And I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, And rather than put affordable housing at the outskirts of our cities, which is what we've traditionally done, we see that many more cities are understanding that actually we have a lot of land in cities that is not being used well and we can we can um, redeploy that land, use that that land for better uses, like affordable housing, um, and you know that's that benefits everybody. Um, so uh, you know we see we see that happening in places like L.A., um, where what was just a single family home is now, you know, putting on an in law or some additional uh, units in the in the back, which is you know a, a small movement, but all of that adds up. Or we see areas where in city centers, commercial buildings aren't being utilized now that are being turned into residential areas. Or one of the most valuable shifts is when you have parking lots, empty lots not being used um, at all or being used to store heaps of metal. (laughs) And that's not a very valuable space, uh, use of space. And so, you know, reuse of of parking, parking lots as well. Another um, kind of opportunity less related to, to housing, but but also related to parking is the huge amount of space that goes to parking on our streets. Um, again, often there's no cars or cars that just sit there empty for hours or days on end. And we can be using that space for dedicated bus lanes and protected bike lanes. Um, that move a, a lot more people and consolidate our parking into 
off street parking that's better managed. So there's there's huge opportunities um, that are really just out there that, um, you know, of course, there's there's always pushback. But I think there's there's also low hanging fruit that is, you know, less kind of unsettling for for folks as well. The 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 parking on the street is is such a fascinating one. I, I had this conversation with somebody recently. I think it was on the podcast, but it all all of the conversations I have blend together at this point. <laughs> but um, but but about you know the 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 millions of on street parking spots in New York City um, that are effectively free, and it it kind of blows my mind because how how valuable that real estate is. And I'm I'm surprised from a political standpoint. I, I guess I guess it's just too politically contentious, I guess. I mean, you're, you're in New York City, you're in New York City, so you might have a sense on that. But uh... yeah, I mean, it is crazy when you think about New York, especially, I mean, every one of those spaces is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. you know, um, uh, even millions, probably in some neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and it's just sitting there, uh, um, not being used well. Yeah, I mean, it is politically contentious for sure. But I think one of the interesting things with parking is that it doesn't have to be a citywide decision, which, you know, getting consensus at a citywide level is so hard. But it can be a street by street, block by block um, change. And it is happening here in New York. The number of bike lanes that have been put in in the last years is is really incredible um dedicated bus lanes are also going in and you know there is pushback but usually in the end local businesses realize that they actually get a lot more business that way and it's better it's better for the economics of of the situation so you know you end up having a, a shift in in politics from those those one or two maybe local residents to like the, the bigger picture of the neighborhood usually falling in, in favor of these changes. And one of the really exciting things that we've seen, you know, almost overnight here in New York is 10, more than 10,000 parking places have been shifted to open restaurants. You know, these right, restaurants yeah. that extend their restaurants into the streets using um, parking places and having parking places go to um, open streets or actually streets that are closed to, to car traffic and are open for people to walk and cycle and just mingle. Um, I mean, and it's it's been huge. I mean, every, everybody in the city loves it. Um, the businesses love it. The restaurants love it. Um, you know, and again, that was more than 10,000 spaces pretty much overnight. So it can be done and it can be positive. You just got to get over that, those initial hurdles, which it takes political will. You need, you need somebody with a vision and leadership that can, that can make it happen and get over that initial pushback and be able to really show the rewards. And then with that, it's, you, you can gain more momentum. So if it's possible here in New York, it's possible anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, maybe new mayor, uh, Eric Adams will, will, will tackle that. Uh, so let, let's maybe transition a little bit to ID, ITDP's work. Uh, you mentioned that you do a lot of work in the global South, and and certainly that's um, a an area we probably haven't spent as much time on the podcast talking about. We did have Benji de la Pena on, uh, who certainly talks about makeshift mobility. I would love to learn from you some of the lessons that you believe that um, – folks here in the U.S. can learn about transportation and climate resilience from the global south? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, yeah, 
you know, thinking again back to to where I grew up in LA, it's interesting. You know, uh, we've been hearing from LA, and they're like, we we really love being part of um, efforts that ITDP does, where we bring cities together from all over the world. Because they say, you know, we are we're often clustered with European cities, and we have nothing in common with European cities. We have much more in common with a city like Mexico City, <laughs> you mm. know, shaped like us, um, and a lot of the same issues. So there are so many lessons to to be had from the global South, and you know, I think one of the the exciting things that we see um, happening is really an investment in um, in buses and in public transportation. Again, most people can't afford to get around in private vehicles. And, you know, city leaders in, in the most progressive cities understand that. And so they're really investing in their public transportation systems. And, you know, that is um, metro systems. But uh, also, a lot of it is in in new bus systems. Um, buses are one of the most cost-effective ways of investing in public transportation. With electric buses, you know, they can be modern and cool with Wi-Fi on board and all the sorts of things that you get in subway. And you're not underground. <laughs> and we have to be be real as climate change gets real and floods are increasing being underground is is not the best place to be. So, you know, if we can instead um, depend on buses that travel in dedicated lanes so that they can move quickly through the traffic, um, like bus rapid transit systems that are designed essentially like metros with boarding platforms and ticketing systems and everything just like a metro, but using buses, um, it's so much more cost effective and it's so much faster to build. Um, so cities like Jakarta, Indonesia, Mexico City, Mexico, um, Rio, uh, Brazil are all really investing in their bus, bus systems and converting their fleets to, to electric fleets. And, and that's a really exciting thing to see. And then also, you know, we see this in the U.S., but um, a, a lot all over the world now is, again, investing in bike systems. Um, taking away parking and putting in protected lanes that are dedicated for for bicycles and other two and three wheeler <laughs> zoom zoom objects we see on the on the roads these days, um, and investing in bike share systems. I mean, bike share systems can be huge for getting people on bikes. It's you know they're visible and you see somebody riding down some of the street in some cool new bike and you, and it's available to you. You try it and it gets more people onto bikes. More bike share systems are integrating e-bikes as well and it's just once you get more people on bikes it changes the bike culture of the city and it's you know it's a reinforcing um, uh, kind of circle. So um, again, cities like Jakarta, Mexico City, Rio, uh, Kigali in uh, in Africa, you know, cities all over the world are really investing in their bike um, infrastructure and their bike share systems. And I think that's that's a huge thing as well. And then, you know, integrating all of that with things like fare systems, you know, like smart card fare systems that you can use to go from 
the bike share system, to the bus, to the, the metro, making everything much more seamless with apps to you can use to, um, you know, information to find your way around, um, you know, really incredible investments in those sorts of systems around the world as well. I brought up Jakarta. Jakarta has this new Jacklingo system that they've been investing in over the last few years, and it's really changed the game. I mean, when people have to pay multiple fares, the cost can really add up. Oh, sure. you know, before you know it, you're spending $20, $25 on transportation in, in places here in the U.S., and that can be a huge amount of income for somebody. So when you're a family of three or, or four or five, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, per person and then per family. Yeah, of course. So when you can put it all on one fare system and and avoid those kind of multiple charges and make it easier for people, it's a, it's a real huge win. So we see a lot of that happening around the world as well. So the all you know certainly you could look at. It, it those examples that you gave, and certainly there are some places, obviously, you know, in the U.S. that are that are making the investments in transportation and doing the bike shares and all of that kind of stuff. The the one that I feel like certainly the the U.S. is not doing as well of uh, well at um, is the dedicated lanes, both for bikes and for for buses. Like to me, that that's that comes back to this like fundamental. Certainly, we have. Some communities, certainly Boston's doing a great job of piloting a lot of, of, of dedicated bus lanes uh, and especially the piloting part, just just like making it easy to start. But gee, it just it just seems like there's so many opportunities there in so many communities, especially when so many are dealing with traffic and congestion. And that is the fundamental thing that gets in the way of a positive bus experience is when you're behind a bunch of single occupancy vehicles. So maybe to, to kind of dig just a one level deeper there, specifically as it relates to the dedicated infrastructure. How do we build the political will there to say, yeah, I know you're going to you're going to you're going to hear some howling from folks, but this is the right thing to do. You got any got any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's such a good question and it's the one that we continue to ask ourselves all the time because it's always the hardest thing. But um you know, uh, you mentioned Boston. We've been doing work in Boston for many, many years, and it's taken many, many years to get us to where we are today, which is very exciting, where we actually, as you mentioned, have these pilots on the street with um, center-running bus lanes, um, which is a, a part of getting to true bus rapid transit systems. And, uh, you know, there aren't many kilometers on the road, but people are experiencing them now and they really love them and they're asking for more. And that's one of that's part of the strategy. I mean, it is taking the time to get some political will and commitment so that you can start piloting it. And when people experience the benefit, that's the real that's the best way to change hearts and minds on on this. Um and, uh, you know, just in that same way of experiencing it in your own town, that is one of the things that we try to influence the first decision makers by taking them to a system that really works and helping them experience it. So I mentioned earlier that, that you know, L.A. is looking at Mexico City. Well, we've taken a lot of folks to, from the U.S. to Mexico City. It's not too far away. Yeah. But it's a world away in terms of the transportation systems that they've built there. They have a lot of bus rapid transit systems that create an entire network 
um, and of all dedicated lanes. Again, if you saw it, you would think it's a metro, but it's not. It's a bus system. Um, and we take leaders like leaders from Boston, from L.A., from uh, Austin um, to to Mexico so that they can experience the system. And once they do, they see what a game changer it really can be. Um, and then, you know, it brings them on board to, to try and make it happen locally. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's coming up with plans, engaging the community, make sure that, um, you know, they know what's that's happening, getting their feedback on um, design improvements that, that meet the needs of the community. Um, uh, and, you know, then piloting it and pushing it through, getting funding from the city level, state level, federal level um, to get these projects done. Because although they're not as expensive as metro systems, you know, there's still big infrastructure investment um, needs, but also opportunities. And, um, we're so excited that the new infrastructure bill has a lot of support for all these sorts of things, including a lot of money for public transportation and, and bicycles. I mean, I think it's the first time we've ever seen bicycles mentioned in, in an infrastructure package at the federal level. So um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity out there and, um, you know, we're going to be doing our best to try and shine a light on the the examples that we have in Boston and more in LA and and other places uh, around the country and um, and yeah try and try and get that that political will there so we can use that funding as best as possible. I love that. I love that kind of the the way you framed that as far as the experiential nature of that that. And, and Brad Rawson uh, with Somerville, Massachusetts, I talked to him about some of the pilots they were doing with MBTA on, on the bus lines as well. And, and I, think, I think the approach that they, th- they really took was around, can we deploy this quickly so that then people can get to that stage that you talked about, which is that experiential part of it. It's like, we don't have to build this whole, you know, X billion dollar, you know, you know, heavy rail, light rail time type of thing. Let's just do some cones. Let's have a, uh, you know, someone, a, a traffic uh, officer that's there to kind of help make sure only the buses are going through. And b- boom, we have some BRT that we can just pilot and people can experience what it's like to fly by all those folks that are, are just yeah. sitting there in those, in, at those red lights. Uh, I think I think that's a really important important thing that I hope that we can get more of, which is just this really quick, agile approach to to trying things. Yeah, I think I mean it's been um, it's been great to see the progress that, and momentum that has come from that in Boston. But yeah, I mean it's we did some similar things in Boston as they're doing here in in New York City. Um, yeah, putting some cones up, putting some paint up. <laughs> Um, and, uh, also, um, you know, we did this thing where we put down kind of, uh, these, um, like rubber platforms, uh, Mm -hmm. next to the bus stop. So essentially it's like, you're getting onto the bus, like you would from a raised platform. Um, we, you know, got some local artists out to do some fun painting around the, the bus stops and in bus Boston, we actually did something that was called the flower bomb where we 
just put a ton of amazing flowers in one of the bus stops. Because one of the other things is like bus stops are most of the time terrible places to to be, right? Nobody wants to wait for the bus at some dingy, dirty bus stop, but it shouldn't be that way. Bus stops should be, you know, made for people to feel dignified and, and good as they wait for the bus. So um, it was fun to just like do some fun things to to create some some really nice, comfortable bus stops and also get people to change their mindset in that way. So yeah, these these fast kind of demonstration pilots are are really key. And yeah, it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't have to take a lot of money. Um, it just takes some some creativity and some again, political will and hopefully some great involvement from the community. Yeah, I think you certainly what you just shared certainly kind of fits into this next question I have for you. But I I, want to ask it just to give you the opportunity to add anything to it, which is, you know, where do we need to go from here to get to the equitable, accessible and verdant mobility future that we all deserve? And, And if you were if you were President Biden right now, I guess you're, you know, if you were President Thompson right now, rather, um, <laughs> or if you're Secretary of Transportation or uh, even a state level DOT official, what kind of things would you be thinking about doing? If I, if I was king of the universe. Mm, yes. <laughs> if I was king of the universe, uh, you know, I, I think the, what the equation I would be looking to change is essentially making driving around in a private vehicle a lot more expensive and making it a lot easier to get on public transportation and more attractive and safer to walk or, or cycle. Um, and of all of those things, I think public transportation, as I've said, buses, I think are such a huge part of the, the solution, but also so much more on biking. I mean, most people, when they're going anywhere, it's less than an, a mile or less than three miles. And, uh, you know, we're becoming less and less active as human beings these days. So I think really just like a huge push to make people understand how much benefit there is from cycling and how pretty much all of their trips could be done on a bicycle and laying the the infrastructure for that Um it's just such a it's such an easy solution um, when it comes to the changes that we actually have to do on the ground and with such huge benefit benefit from a climate change perspective, equity perspective, bikes are affordable, but also from a resilience perspective, um, whether it's the pandemic where we want to get around and you know try to not brush up with other people or just thinking about the modes of transportation that are you know it's it's a mode of transportation you can use no matter if there's you know been flooding or fires or whatnot it's it's you know one of those things that you can rely on um, much more dependably so uh, much more investment in cycling for sure but again it's kind of that bottom line equation that most people driving around in cars really don't pay for what they're using there's maintenance of of roads there's building of highways there's you know, insurance, which people, of course, pay for their own insurance. But, you know, there's a lot of damage that's done beyond that um, pollution to air, causing of climate change. Like none of that is integrated into the equation um, of, of cost when it comes to, to driving. So doing things like uh, I mentioned before, making parking uh, more difficult, making parking more expensive, um, you know, making cars themselves more expensive, 
having low emission zones or zero emission areas or congestion pricing in cities to make it more expensive to drive into cities. Um, you know, really changing that equation um, while at the same time providing more support for public transportation and again, giving public transportation the right of way, the preferred right of way on, on the street so that public transportation can move more quickly while the cars wait at those lights. <laughs> um, but yeah, changing that equation um, uh, and uh, so that, yeah, public transportation is, is the preferred method and that we, in, we invest in that as a collective community rather than in the well-being of, of individuals. Yeah, you know, the theme there is, is certainly options there that, are, that underline that, because certainly if you want to make, if you want shifts to happen, uh, people have to have multiple options to achieve what they, you know, achieve the mobility outcomes that they want. And unfortunately, for a lot of communities, you know, at least in the U.S. and, and even around the world, the 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 car is the only option for them. The way the infrastructure has been built, the way uh, our communities have have spread, um, and and so I think we're we're going to have to kind of provide those options. And I think if we provide those options and we then weight them accordingly, uh, mm -hmm. so that those uh, full costs are borne by those who are who are using those those things that have those externalities. Then I think we can then people will opt into those other options. I mean, I, I think you know most people will kind of make that logical decision to say, oh yeah, well I was driving, but now driving is more expensive and it takes twice as long as it used to. That bus is starting to look really good, and then all of a sudden we're starting to get a positive feedback loop there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people want other options. Um, people are, you know, we have a lot of sprawl. And with that sprawl, we have a lot of congestion and people are tired of sitting in their cars in traffic. They want other options. So when cities build them, people come, you know, we just need a lot more of that. Yeah, I love it. Heather, this has been so great to get to understand a little bit more about ITDP and the work you're doing, uh, both here in the US. Uh, you guys some gave some great examples there in Boston, uh, but also around the world to uh, help uh, folks have some of those options and to move around uh, effectively, uh, not only to have a better way of life for themselves, but also to ensure that this planet that we live on uh, stays as uh, available uh, for us to enjoy for as long as possible. So um, keep up the great work and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. It was fun to talk. I love the questions and I love the discussion. So yeah, thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, head to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can find out more at translope.com or follow Josh Cohen on Twitter at CohenJP. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of The Movement.